Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Broadcasting Politics, another segment produced by Doreen LaGuardia and, and sponsored by Students for a Better Future. Tonight we have a great show. We have Dr. Jerome Siegel. He's a public policy analyst, conflict resolution practitioner, peace activist, and philosopher. And on top of that, he's running for the U.S. Senate against U.S. Senator Ben Cardin. We will have Dr. Siegel in a couple minutes. But for now, I want to briefly discuss what's been going on. We had the omnibus bill signed last week by President Trump approved by both houses. And now we have all this debate. Where's the money going to go to? Be building a wall. Is it going to go for DACA? How much is it going to go for the military? You know, it's basically, that's the reason no one, very few people have confidence in what's going on in, in Washington, D.C. There's no, there's no clear defined where the agenda is going to go. Or how is it going to be executed? It's confusing. And no wonder no one wants to really run for office, with the exception of Dr. Siegel, who, who, who actually is running for. But I believe that in November of 2018, we have to elect individuals that are going to be working for the people, not against the people, the American people, because People have had it. Everywhere I turn and speak to Americans, they're disgusted with the, 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 the path that this country, our country is taking. Suppose leaders that we have in Washington, D.C., and, 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 you know, I think high school or, or grammar school kids can do a better job. It's a total game that these individuals in Washington, D.C. are playing. But anyway... Let's go and see if Dr. Siegel is, is back. Dr. Siegel, how are you? Yes, hi. I'm good. I'm good. Definitely. I, I had my little short monologue here, but uh, I just wanted to bring you before the 905, uh, 902, because we have so much to cover. And sure. uh, again, this is, this, is, this is broadcast politics. We, we're here every Tuesday, 9 o'clock. We're basically uh, excited to have you on the, on the program today. Uh, if you can basically tell our, our audience a little by yourself, uh, I briefly just, uh, mentioned a couple of things, but uh, if you want to summarize what you've done and what do you plan to do in regards to the uh, U.S. Senate against U.S. Senator Ben Cardin. Okay, you want me to focus on uh, uh, my international stuff, Israeli-Palestinian? I mean, international, sort of a, that, internet. We can talk about anything. I, I can talk to you about okay. uh, any uh, anything you want. Okay. How much time do we have? We have right now. We have fifty-seven minutes. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven minutes. Yes. Oh, great. That's great. Okay. That gives us. Okay. Um, when do you want to start? I'm sorry. You want, when do you want to start? Let's start right now. Um, oh, okay. I, 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 have a set of, I have a set of questions, but what we normally do in this program, the, the breakdown is I introduce you, and then you summarize some of the things that you, you, you've done, 
things that you, you, you're planning to do. And, okay. and then we can, then we can jump right into the, uh, in, into the conversation in regards to, you know, gun control, you know, okay. uh, and, and, and gun issues. And also basically your, your run for the, for the U S Senate against uh, Senator uh, Ben Cohen. Sure. Sure. Um, and can you send me a tape of it when, uh, when we're done? I will do that. And give my email. It's, it's Jerome at jeromesegel.org. Okay. So what, what got you started in, 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 in public policy and, and uh, being a peace activist and a philosopher? Okay. Well, um, let's see. <laughs> in, in a certain sense, it was uh, the first teaching uh, in the United States on the University of Michigan campus in uh, the spring of 1965. I was a first-year graduate student in philosophy at Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought that I was just going to be an academic, and uh, uh, the anti-war sentiment was rising. And some of my professors actually were among the people who organized what initially was going to be a strike. And then they had a much better idea, which has do what they call the teach-in, and they ran classes on, uh, on the war in Vietnam and so on. I remember went all through the night for a couple of days, and uh, within weeks this had spread over, all over the United States. And um, uh, we learned more in those few days, actually, than, um, than I think we had up to that point in our lives about, uh, about the world that we were living in. So um, I, uh, by the... Um, Two months later, I was ready to to um, go to a um, big meeting of early SDS in Upper Michigan, and then uh, I went on to a civil rights project in uh, Cairo, Illinois, which is closer to Little Rock than uh, Chicago uh, in the summer. And um, I've been kind of an activist one form or another uh, ever since. I started, after I finished grad school, I got a job teaching at philosophy department at the University of Pennsylvania, but was very involved. The war was still going on. I was interested in electoral politics. I wanted to see if we could find someone to run against the Republican senator from Pennsylvania, who was the minority leader uh, on an anti-war mm-hmm. platform. And uh, I had a great scheme. I actually had something there called Peace Homes Cooperative Association. We were going to, it was to buy up all these three-story Victorians in West Philadelphia and build a whole grassroots political movement. And I was talked out of it by a guy that, no, I wasn't talked out of it, but my colleagues were talked out of it by a guy who said, um, real estate, you don't want to get your money in real estate. These houses were $15,000 and six (laughs) six bedroom houses that are now worth a half million. (laughs) We'd have been like Trump, but um, in any event, we've come up. We, we've, we've come up. We've come a long way from those fifteen thousand dollars for for, sure for a piece of property. <laughs> we sure have. So, uh, I after four years at at, at Penn, uh, which it was very political because a lot of stuff in the '60s was university-based politics, uh, yep. you know, with re-questioning education and stuff like that. Um, but I uh, I actually walked away from an academic career and. Um, Went back to school, got another master's degree, this one in uh, public policy, and uh, then came to first to Washington, then at the UN, and then back to Washington, working for a congressman, worked for him for four years, and then went into the executive branch and worked on um, uh, 
in USAID on development assistance, uh, which my job was basically to enforce an incredibly progressive piece of legislation that, in fact, my congressman had helped pass called the New Directions Legislation, which redefined the purpose of U.S. foreign aid as to help the uh, poor majority in third world countries uh, meet mm-hmm. their own basic needs with an emphasis on women and development and the environment and so on. Much more progressive than anything we would do our, in our own country. Um, but we, and so my job was to actually, I was responsible, I was in the Central Policy Bureau working actually, believe it or not, two years later for John Bolton. Um, and um, my job was to um, enforce this law, which was agency policy, on the Near East Bureau, who was filled with sort of people who built dams and roads and things like that under the Truman administration and hardly knew what we were talking about. So Mm -hmm. I did that. um, And then in 82, um, just even though I was working on the Middle East, as I say, um, it really had nothing to do with it. It was really when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982. Um, This was, um, it was, it was on a complete pretext, um, which which was what it really was, was an effort to try to capture and kill the whole PLO leadership. Uh, they were all right. in Lebanon. Uh, and uh, it was, it was devised by Arya Sharon with uh, Menachem Begin was prime mm-hmm. minister. And they, they didn't really explain it either to the rest of the cabinet and certainly not to the Knesset or the Israeli people. They made it sound as if they were just trying to do a, a defensive line, 20 kilometers east and north rather but actually, it was it was an effort to um, to kill off the PLO leadership in the belief that you could snuff out Palestinian nationalism uh, by doing that, and it was like totally moronic because what it resulted in is actually uh, making real heroes out of the PLO leadership in 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 the West Bank, and then at the end of the day, they didn't kill them off. What happened was that the Reagan administration evacuated them on U.S. naval boats to Tunisia. Um, and then when the PLO was gone and the refugees were defenseless in their camps, the Israelis uh, sort of facilitated the uh, entree into the camps of the right-wing Lebanese Falange that carried out this horrible massacre of like 1,000 or 2,000 women and children. It was so bad that there were investigations inside of Israel that forced Sharon to be removed as defense minister. Uh, and right. Begin, I think, you know, he, he died shortly afterwards, but I think he was a broken man after all this. Well, anyhow, that's what got me going. And, that's um, what got you going. I started. So, uh, let, let, so let, me, let me stop you. Let me stop you right there. Uh, uh, and, and we'll go back. You can go back. Uh, so how do you feel about the uh, increasing settlement on the West, on, on the West Bank? Well, you know, the, the whole settlement project was uh-huh. part of, of an effort uh, primarily to prevent the two-state solution. The idea was to create facts on the ground that made it impossible for there to be a Palestinian state. And um, Israeli Prime Minister Shamir, after he was uh, left mm-hmm. office, actually was very candid and said that his plan was actually to drag out the negotiations for 10 years, during which time he would put a million settlers in the West Bank and right. essentially essentially annex it uh, for all uh, effects and purposes. So now my own feeling is actually it turns out that 
the settlements are um, actually can be dealt with uh, <laughs> despite their plans. They haven't destroyed the West Bank, and I could ex- the two-state solution. I could explain that, but what they have done is they've totally discredited the moderate Palestinian leadership in the eyes of the Palestinian people. So right. I don't know if you know Palestinians, but 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 they have some has a wicked sense of humor. And um, <laughs> and one of the things that they say is, um, so we've been negotiating over a pizza with the Israelis for 25 years while they've been eating it. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and that's how they I, characterize I, their, their own leaders. See, our, our guys I, are sitting down thinking they're negotiating. Israelis are eating the pizza. You know? Well, I, ha- so, I have to tell you, Doc. Tell you, Doctor Siegel, I'm very pro-Israel. Um, well, I am you know, too. I, I am too. The question, uh, yeah, is, the very... question is, do, do, do we mean Israel, or do, or do we mean, you know, historic I, Palestine I, all the way to the Jordan River? Well, I, my 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 theory is this: that this two-way state. Uh, I, I I'm for it, but I believe that the Palestinians and the Arab community, uh, and the, it's basically they don't really want a two state solution they don't if they did well, they would they would have they would have actually taken come to the table and sat down with the israeli and and basically should be negotiate the best deal for their people and get yeah. it done and they haven't they've been dragging on this and then you have you have uh hezbollah and then you have uh, hamas and all these organizations that basically control the 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 Palestinian the PLO I mean the uh, the Palestinian leadership okay, uh, and, so Gaza, and Gaza and, and, and the West Bank and, and that's to me that's that's the actual reason why nothing has been accomplished since that yeah, great so great sure, event that sure Arafat yeah mm-hmm. so, so I'm not sure where to go with this because like uh, you know I understand what you're saying and there are a lot of people who believe what you do the thing is that um, so I've worked on this for 35 years I've I've written three books about it and probably a hundred articles. Um, right. And uh, there are about five things that you said in three minutes that, that are completely wrong about the history. And it would sort of be a waste okay. of our time for me to try oh, to no, walk no, no, you no. I, each I, and no, every no, one no, of no, them. Well, well, no, no, basically that's I mean, how I, could do I look it. at I it. Could do it if you, it. I could do it if you want, but, but well, that'll be the whole show. So no, 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 no. We'll, 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 we'll touch on, on what the reason I, I invited you, you know, and, and got you on the show. And basically the, the, the gun, gun and also you're running for the, for the Senate. But I just, you brought up the, the, the situation of, about the two-state solution, Israel and, and, yeah. and, and the Palestinians. And, and I basically feel, based on, on, on the research I've done, that if the if the Arab countries were really serious about negotiating with Israel, it got done already. It would have been, they would have been on. What about the negotiations that happened uh, under Clinton? What about the negotiations that happened at Taba? What about the negotiations that happened when, when Olbert was, uh, was prime minister? What about the Balin Abu Mazen agreement? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a whole history of negotiations that have occurred and uh you know each of them has has their own their own history but the idea that somehow uh, it's sort of you know palestinian refusal to make peace with israel that's the explanation of it that's not the case actually the palestinians did this extraordinary thing which is just mm-hmm. to get a ticket to the negotiations 
they recognized Israel's right to exist. I went in 1987. I was part of the first group of American Jews to go to Tunis to open dialogue with right. ELO. And we were trying to convince them to accept the American conditions. And these are American conditions just for American diplomats to even talk to them. And one of them was, you know, that they had to recognize Israel's right to exist. And what they said right. to us then is, look, is, look, recognizing Israel's right to exist, that's our best card. That's basically when we finally reach a peace agreement with Israel, like Egypt reached with Israel, that mm-hmm. agreement ends with our recognizing Israel's right to exist. You can't ask us to play that now for nothing, not even in negotiations with Israel, but just to even be able to talk to the Americans. What we said to them was, look, what you're saying is logical, but the truth of the matter is you're talking about it as your best card to play. You'll never even get within 100 miles of that negotiating table to play anything unless you meet the American conditions now. And ultimately, they agreed. And what happened in, in an amazing month between November 15th and December 14th of 1988 is that they reversed their, their position on the partition resolution of 1947, which they had held for 41 years, which resolution called for the creation of two states, is a Jewish state right. and an Arab state. They came to right. accept that as legitimate. And then four weeks later, they recognized Israel's right to exist uh, to the satisfaction of, of President Reagan. And Reagan opened the PLO dialogue three days later And it took five years to get the Israelis there. But five years later, under Bill Clinton, we had a signing ceremony on the White House lawn of the Oslo Accords. And Arafat and Rabin shook hands and they exchanged letters. And Arafat's letter to Rabin just said simply straight out, we recognize Israel's right to exist. And Rabin's letter said, we recognize the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people. And so that, that was the beginning. And I think actually that they should have pushed ahead and gone straight to full-scale negotiations to end the conflict right then and there. The Israelis wanted a five-year period uh, three, uh, to put off even three years before even beginning negotiations on the final status issues. And Rabin was assassinated before, before they even got to, uh, right. to, to begin the negotiations. So, you know, it, it's yeah. a very complex story, but it's one in which the PLO – uh, in truth, uh, did put the bottom line on the table first, uh, which is right. acceptance of Israel's right to exist. Yeah, one more, one more thing, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, sure. I don't think, I don't, I don't believe t- today we can find an Awar Sadat type of le- leadership in the Arab world like we did. Well, That's maybe the not, I but, think. but but that was a great man. That was a great man, you know. You know, here's, here's he a joke for you. He was. So I'm talking, I'm in Tunis, I'm in Tunis talking to Arafat, right? And he says yeah. to me, uh, he says, you know, we're looking for an Israeli de Gaulle. I want to go hand in hand with an Israeli de Gaulle. De Gaulle was the French president who took the, the French yeah. out of Algeria, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I, after that, I go and I sit down later. I was telling you about Palestinian sense of humor, right? I'm talking to a guy who's one of Arafat's closest advisors, right? He wasn't in the meeting and I tell him, I say, you know, Arafat said to me that, unfortunately, there's no Israeli de Gaulle. So he says to me, it's true, but unfortunately, there's no Palestinian de Gaulle either. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we you're could, right. We, like you, you know, Anwar Sadat, 
unless it's not, don't come and go. You know, this is, and, yeah. and we've got to find a way to move forward without depending on, you know, the rare thing of, of someone with that kind of imagination and spirit. Definitely. Definitely. Well, let's move on to, uh, sure. Facing our country, facing our country today, which is, in, in, in my opinion, something similar to the anti-war period that we had in the 70s. Today is the, the 60s, excuse me. Today we're facing what I feel on college campuses and also around the country, and now even the children are getting involved. Yeah. The anti-gun yeah. anti revolution. Yeah, you put your finger on it. You put your finger on it. I think you're uh-huh. exactly right. That's the historical reference point. It is, it yes. is, the, is the awakening, the radicalization of a whole new generation. And, and we don't know where this is going to go, but it really, I think it really is powerful. And that's part of why I was down on the mall, um, you know, doing my thing. I, I probably saw this release, which is probably why you guys called me, which was that I took $50,000 out of the bank. Now, of course, I did this in, in the context of a political campaign. So, you yeah. know, it's not, it's not exactly you know, removed from, from, you know, calculation. But nonetheless, it's still $50,000 of my own money. I haven't raised anything Definitely. Yet. And, uh, and basically, um, I did this thing, which in retrospect was sort of overkill, which is, first of all, I figured out that, figured out, I anticipated that the numbers 500,000 were low. And I said, I bet a million people show up. And so I printed up a million leaflets, which was 12,000 pounds of paper, Right. right, and I printed up, I printed up two thousand T-shirts, and then I, I hired people and I got volunteers and and so on to right. distribute them. And I figured out that if we could cover the seven metro stops that surrounded this thing, coming and going, we would basically be able actually to to be in contact with almost everybody who went in and out. Like that was the way that people were getting down there with, the, with these seven metro stops. So I had, I had you know groups of people at each mm-hmm. metro, and I drove a U-Haul. Uh, I had three day workers. Well, if you can imagine the scene, right? I'm crowded, four mm-hmm. of us crowded into the front seat at, at seven in the morning, driving, you know, each one. I, my son had one van. I had the other one with these three guys, 6,000 pounds of paper, heading down <laughs> to Union Station to stock. And the only time you could do it is when it was early, right, before the crowd got there, because you wouldn't be able to get a truck in later. So the idea right. was to unload 100,000 leaflets at Union Station so that these people would be stocked for the day. Right? <laughs> it was wild. Exactly. It, it was well, absolutely wild. But I have anyway, to tell you, I, I, I do have – this is where we're, we're going to really disagree, Dr. Siegel, because yeah. I, I, have to, I have to tell you that uh, even though I have a lot of friends that are, you know, they, they, they go to the left and I have friends that go to the right, but I, I definitely have a problem with when that. after eight years of the, administ- of the Obama administration, where there was yeah. more, more stu- uh, mass killings in schools and everywhere, I did not see anyone from the left come out in full force during Obama or criticize the Obama administration, uh-huh. or I'll have someone like yourself 
spend $50,000 and print out 1 million leaflets. Uh, so to promote but what, the what march of our lives. Right. So I, I'm saying to myself, if, 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 well, I didn't see a, a march for our lives during the Obama administration. I did not see Hollywood actors donating half a million dollars to these students in, you know, around, the, around the nation to come to Washington, D.C. and promote uh, you know, uh, anti-gun legislation or Second Amendment. Well, Anti-Second anti, anti, anti So that's, that's why I, I, I don't disagree with you on the issue that yes, we have to curtail certain magazines, you know, or certain, uh, but the hypocrisy of the Democrats and the left to come out and spend doing eight years of Obama when there were so many mass shootings. Why do you no think this complaint. is an anti-Trump there was no demonstration? demonstration. Why, why, why is this there was no demonstration? Anyway, I wasn't, anyway. You said you disagreed with me, but I, I, we haven't gotten to my views yet, so I don't think you know whether you disagree okay. with me or not. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so here's what, here, uh, let me describe to you, let me describe to you what was on these leaflets, because that's the most important thing. Okay. Yeah. So the leaflet had two sides, and they, they corresponded to what I view are two problems. Uh, one is, you know, what's going on in the schools across the country and concerts and so on. It's basically... Largely middle-class white kids are, are anywhere. People who thought they were safe suddenly are, are the targets of people who, who, you know, are probably just mentally deranged, but, but for some reason have gotten into targeting children um, right. and have created a kind of panic. Um, that's one phenomenon. Another phenomenon, a very different class of children, largely black and brown, who live in the poorest neighborhoods in our cities, uh, 24-7 are afraid and being killed and living in a shooting gallery, and nobody's paid attention to them for years and years and years. And one of the things that I was trying to do is say, look, this is a new movement. Uh, it's sort of like the very beginning of the anti-war movement, just what you're saying. And what's important right. is for us to think about why are we here, right? And the, the people who organized the march said, you know, it's a march for our lives. And that didn't make any sense to me. Um, first of all, I thought of myself as being in the march, but I certainly didn't think I was marching for my life. I mean, it didn't even mention children, you know. So it was a little wacko. Um, but I said, look, I think let's reconceptualize this. And what I suggested uh, was another way of thinking about it. And I said that I think this is about the rights of children. And the right that I would talk about is the right of all children to a childhood without fear. And that's what we're here for is the fact and some a woman walking by said because we have these t-shirts on the first line it said uh the the right the right to a childhood and then the next line it said without fear and she said you don't even need the second line i would just leave you the right to a childhood and uh, i i thought that was that was pretty good <laughs> you know right. so so in a certain sense what i was saying is look let's step back a second and broaden this thing and say what we're talking about is, is the right to a childhood or the right to what we think of as a, a, as a childhood that a lot of children are not getting. Okay. And there are two different kinds of problems. One of them is in the schools or, you know, the shooters. And actually I think that problem is going to go away. I personally, I think we're going to solve that problem. 
I don't think that's I don't think that's rocket science. But right. dealing with the pathologies of the cities is something that nobody knows really exactly how to do this. But even if we knew and we were dedicated and we put resources into it, you know, I don't think we'd see big results. Maybe some, but it would be a decade. Could even be two decades, right? So if a kid is 10 years old today and you're talking about his right to a childhood without fear, he's going to be 20 or maybe 30 years old before, you know, we see daylight on this problem. So what I said is actually, look, hold it. Before the cities change, we can, in fact, do something and do something quite significant. The cities right. may not change, but we can get the kids out of the cities. And it was sort of like, what are you talking about, get the kids out of the cities? And I said, look, uh, July and August is 16% of the year. You throw in Christmas and Easter, and you're up to 20% of the year. Okay? Why don't we have for these inner-city kids who would rather, rather than hanging around in the streets in the summer, would rather do what I did when I was a kid. You go to camp. You go to the mountains. Right. You learn to play exactly. tennis and you swim and all this stuff. Why don't we have free summer camp for every inner-city kid that would prefer you know, to be learning to sail, <laughs> you know, in the Catskills than, you know, them being in inner city Baltimore, you know, roasting <laughs> with drugs and so on, you know. And so, um, and I said, um, and, and then I've talked to a number of conservative shows, for some reason, they're very interested in what I've been talking about the last few days. And the right. idea sort of did that. So someone asked me, so who's going to pay for this? I shot back, I said, the NRA. I said, I just, I, without even thinking, I said the NRA is going to pay for it. And what I meant, <laughs> what, what I meant is actually, look, the NRA would love to be on the right side of this issue, and it had better, because what's happening is a whole generation that is that if, if we don't make progress on these issues, is going to say screw the Second Amendment, let's just repeal it, the whole damn thing, you know, and clamp down. But the problem with the NRA is that it hasn't been able to think of a powerful policy response that doesn't involve dealing with the guns. But this thing that I brought up of getting the kids to summer camp, in fact, you know, I mean, I actually believe we should do something with the guns, but the truth of the matter is we can do, we can do a 20% reduction in the death rate of these kids by just getting them away from the guns rather than, rather than taking the guns out of the city, get them out of the city. I think the NRA, actually, I'm going to try to talk to them, but I think they would, they could, First of all, they could raise the money for this from the business community. But secondly, it would be like a hot knife through butter. If they threw their support to this, we can actually get funding through the Congress on this within 10 days. And we could start a program, in fact, this summer. It's still enough time. These camps, because it doesn't have to be perfect the first year. Even if you just added tents, you know, you get some of the older counselors, campers, to go into tents, and you put these inner-city kids in the cabins, you know, and everybody understands that they're doing something bigger. They would love it. The campers would love it. The feeling that, that they were actually doing something that meant something, you know. So we could, we could turn this country around. And what I was saying, what I went on this morning, and I think I'm really onto something, is that we need a real realignment in the United States in terms of the way we think. And what, what, I, what I realize is that people define themselves not in terms of their values and their objectives and the causes that really motivate them and so on. They really define themselves over how they sort out in terms of what kind of means to use in addressing these things. So, you know, like if you're a free market person, 
then you know you're the heritage interest. You you believe such and such, you know. And if you and if you believe in in a bigger state, then you might be some somewhere you know somewhere else. And it's as if sort of which side you're on depends on that rather than a different way of cutting across who we are. For me, the big difference right. is the difference between people who seriously care about these issues rather than give it lip service and other well, people who basically I, don't give a damn. You see, I, I, and, I, I, I have, I have to, I, it's commendable. It's commendable what you're saying in regards to doing this for urban kids. Uh, I grew up all my life in New York city. Fortunately, yeah, I, I, yeah. Where'd you grow up? Right on the, right on the upper West side in a nice neighborhood. Uh, I grew up in the Bronx. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad was, uh, you know, a professor also. Uh, but, Your dad was a professor? Yeah, he was a math professor. Uh, okay, mine was but, a garment worker. <laughs> but, 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 but I have to tell you, I have to tell you that, that uh, in regards to, and, and I was able to, you know, travel with my parents and everything and, and, and be in camp. But one of the things that, one of the things that I disagree with you on, on what you just said is that we have cities. We have cities like Chicago. They have the yeah. toughest gun gun control laws in the nation, along yeah. with Washington D.C. And every weekend, there's ten or fifteen or twenty people either killed or hurt by guns. These are guns yeah. that are not are not being used by law-abiding citizens. They're by they're being used by criminals. Criminals will always get guns, no matter what. Another another what, what example I, I'm going to give you I, another. What? What did I say that you disagreed with? I don't see you keep saying you disagree with me. What did I say that you disagreed with? Doctor, no, Doctor, one, 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 one more example. One more example, Doctor Siegel. Baltimore, the city of Baltimore. Yeah. The kids during the winter they were sitting in cold classrooms because yeah. they didn't have money for heating to heat the schools, but they did yeah. have money. They did have a lot of money to fund and protect undocumented illegal immigrants in this country. The city of Baltimore, which is basically predominantly a Democrat-controlled city, okay, like majority of the urban areas. So I'm saying, I'm asking you, for 50 years, the Democrats have controlled New York, uh, urban America. Where has that gone, the, has the quality of life in urban America improved during the last 50 years of Democrat control uh, leadership. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, um, you know, I'm a registered Democrat, but uh, if you ask me how big a part of my identity is uh-huh. how, I'm, how I'm registered, uh, <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking a very small percentage of, uh, of how I define myself. So, um, you know, I might even leave the Democratic Party. I, I could tell, you know, I'm not carrying a torch for it. And, and, and my family, you know, my family, first of all, when we were in New York, they voted liberal. You know, in New York, we used to have what we call fusion ticket, where you could, you could have the same person run on two parties. I don't know if it's still that way, but there used to be something called the Liberal Party in New York City, which was right. to the left of the Democrats. And so it kept the Democrats honest, because if they wanted, you know, to pick up the organized workers and I lived like in union housing, they had to get someone who was acceptable to the liberal party. And beyond that, actually my parents were socialists. So, um, so, you know, in fact, I, I still had a house in a community 
north of New York that stores a social hall called Norman Thomas Social Hall with Thomas's picture on it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I don't carry any torch for the Democrats. In, in, in answer to your question, though, the one place that actually that I am aware of, though I haven't lived there, but I still have relatives there, and I'm going up there for Passover, is New York itself. Uh, my understanding is that New York is a much, much safer city now than it was when we were kids. Uh, I mean, you know how scary. I'm, I'm much older than you, but but um, but it was. And I lived in a good neighborhood, right? But I, I went to City College, and I had to walk right. from Harlem, you know, to get from the mm-hmm. uh, the IRT up to class yep. and back. And, and sometimes, you know, eight in the morning in New York, it could be dark out, and uh, yep. you know, five five thirty, it could be dark. Well, that was so scary. Uh, I, nothing bad ever happened to me, but you know, wh- where did you grow up in the Bronx? Were you in the Bronx or Manhattan? I, I I used to I used to play at uh, uh, me uh, my friends and I we, we used to um, hang out at Riverside Park, right on West End. Uh, oh, okay, so in, you're in Manhattan. Yeah, right, Manhattan. But I, I, yeah. let me let me just I don't carry I I don't carry the torch for either Democrats or Republicans. Neither yeah. party well, really neither neither yeah. neither party neither party really represents me. Uh, yeah, well, or, I think that or makes sense. You, you know, know basically, is, yeah. Go ahead. I I ba- basically I feel the same way. I I I don't I don't um I'm not a cheerleader for the for neither of the two parties. But yeah, what I'm either. saying, in fact, in fact, but, but what, I, into, what I'm saying is that Senate, if I got into mm-hmm. the Senate, you know who I have the most trouble with? Chuck Schumer. I I went to the APAC convention. Right, this guy disgusts mm-hmm. me. Um, yeah. he got up. He's like this big swarmy guy. I knew I knew guys like that when I was growing up. You know, he whatever was the <laughs> class president. He was like the class, the class president in high school. You know, so he gets up there and he's a good, very good talker. And he starts out right. with this very funny joke about his dad and Miami. And uh, you, if you have the time, you want to hear the joke? It's very funny. <laughs> he says his father never went to college, but down there in Florida, right, there's some school that's free for anybody who's retired. So his father's taking this. His father's taking this course uh, on Jewish humor. And he says, it's not much of a course. I just get some guy who failed on the Bush belt, spends all afternoon t- telling, telling his jokes, but some of them Schumer says are funny. And he says, his father tells him this one joke, right? And the joke is Mr. Schwartz comes into court. She's arrested. And the judge says to her, Mrs. Schwartz, what are you doing here? What are you doing? here?" He says, the judge says, this is the 17th time, right? And he says, how many times has he been here? And the guy says, the bailiff says 18 times. He says, Mrs. Schwartz, you're, I know you're a kleptomaniac, uh, I, but I can't forgive you. 18 times, you're going to have to spend some time in jail. What did she steal? The, the, the bailiff holds up a can, can of peaches. He says, how many peaches are in there? So he says, four peaches, you're on. He says, Mrs. Schwartz, you're going to have to go and spend four nights in jail. And he's about to bring down the gavel. And someone from, from the audience says, wait, wait, Your Honor, before you do that, I have something to please the court. I want to say something. And the judge says, well, who are you? He says, I'm her husband. And he says, okay, what do you have to say? And he says, look, she stole a can of peas. <laughs> <laughs> that right, is, so that is hilarious. Right, so Schumer tells this joke, and he's got us all laughing, right? Then he flips. He flips, right? And he focuses on something which is, which is true, which is that up at the UN, right, the Arab states spend this disproportionate time, amount of time focusing on anything you know, questionable or, or wrong that Israel might have done, right? 
And he says they hold us to, you know, standard that they don't hold other countries to. It's also true. Okay. So he says, there's only one word for that. And then he pauses in the top of his voice. He yells out, anti-Semitism. And 20,000 <laughs> of these APAC people are on their feet chanting. And Jesus, it's like Nuremberg. I never saw anything like this. It's so everyone is going wild about this anti-Semitism thing. And it's bullshit. You know, there's so many <laughs> other explanations, you know, as to why there's this disproportionate thing. And to call it anti-Semitism is like, it's, it's this, this playing off of the misery of the Jewish people and all the horrible things that happened to us in order to get more money from these APAC contributors who are in the room by pretending to be the brave guy who spoke the word anti-Semitism that the world was afraid to. And, and, and it's disgusting. So I tell you, this, this affected me actually at the conference more than anything else that I heard. And I heard, I heard people that I detest, like, you know, Ron Dermer, the, uh, you know, Netanyahu's foreign uh, ambassador to the United States and so on. But at least those guys, you know, especially the right wing. I mean, some of the Israeli right wing actually are very honest, uh, you know, like, like they just say, you know, like we got the power and, uh, and they don't. Well, 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 but, but, but you know. Dr. Siegel, Dr. Siegel, you're not saying that there's no anti-Semitic individuals out there or anti-Semitic. No, 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 of course not. Of course not. But, but the fact yeah. of the matter is that, that, you know, the reason why the Arab world, you know, hammers away at Israel up there, it's basically because they can, you know, and, right. and, and, and the reason they want to do what they can up there is because uh-huh. between you, you and me, they got their ass kicked every time they went to real battle. So they go, they get up there, you know, and to, and to recover, you know, it's a societies that, that, that really are concerned about both about justice, but about shame and honor and so on. And right. the truth of the matter is that, you know, hundreds of millions of people who never, who, who for, for, you know, centuries, of course, thought of Jews as, uh, you know, second-class citizens that were the right. people of the book, but they nonetheless lived, you know, at, at the uh, disposal of the, uh, of the Muslims throughout the Middle East. I mean, they, they, you know, and the situation of Jews in the Middle East was, you know, a lot better than, than it was in Christian Europe, but it wasn't perfect. Right. And they certainly were second-class citizens. They had to pay special taxes, you know, and all sorts of things. Okay, so then this group thinks that they're going to have a state in land that's part of the, you know, the, the Arab Muslim vision, and you know, we'll we'll snap our fingers and we'll crush them like twigs. Okay, and then we have, and then we have the forty-eight war, you know, and 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 Israel not only, you know, holds its own, but it ends up, you know, taking half of the land that the UN had allocated for the Palestinians. Israel takes right. it. And then we've got the, the, the 67 war and Israel <laughs> takes all of Jerusalem and it takes all of the West Bank all the way to the Jordan River and it takes all of Egypt all the way to the Suez Canal and it takes, right. you know, it, it wipes out the, the, the Syrians and so on. Well, so what do they got? What is it? What is a society that's been humiliated? You know, they, they felt so humiliated that the, that, the, that the broadcast of the first hours of the Six Day War were that it, that it was the Americans who had attacked the Egyptian and the, and the Syrian airfields. They just could not believe that this could be the Israeli Air Force. And for a long right. time, you know, the belief was that the Americans started the war. Well, but, you know, but Dr. Siegel, so, without, so, even so, go, without even going to the, how the Arab community feels about you know, all the attacks 
all the uh, no, my, my that they've my had. Is only that, that that explains more what happens at the UN than, than anti-Semitism does. Right, but what I was bringing, I was bringing anti-Semitism. I was referring to someone like Louis Farrakhan, yeah. who, who who's who's a, a racist, an anti-Semitic. And, and, and then we have President Obama, and we have uh, Keith, uh, Senator Keith Ellison, Democrat from Minnesota, and all these uh, individuals from the Black Caucus around a man that has said so many disgusting things about the Jewish people. Farrakhan, you mean? What's, what, what is your position on that? If, if you get elected to be the next senator of, 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 state, of, of the state of Maryland, replacing Ben Corn. Where would, would yeah. you stand next to Louis Farrakhan, who's who's uh, an anti-Semitic? Uh, well, look, I detest anti-Semitism, but yeah. look, I'm I'm a conflict resolution specialist. Okay, right. So mm-hmm. I I have met with terrorists. Okay, I my job, my work is really to find okay. ways out of some of the toughest knots and nuts, you know, that exist in the world, okay? So I've met, not just with Arafat, right? I've met with George Habash. I've gone to to Gaza alone, you know, a little bit shaken, and I've met with with Hanea, you know, who's now the the head of Hamas, you know? And so for me, it's a little bit different, the question of sort of um, who... Who would I stand with? If you want to know, you know, what I think about anti-Semitism, you know, I, I think it, it's hard to think of anything more, more disgusting and more ignorant. Um, you know, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day because we're coming up to Passover and the whole thing. I was thinking <laughs> of a bumper sticker that would, that would probably get me killed, right? I was thinking of a bumper sticker that simply said, Jesus was not a Christian. <laughs> How could he be a Christian? There wasn't Christianity until after he died. He was a Jew. Right? But if I right. put that on a bumpy sticker, you know, I probably couldn't get up the Jersey Turnpike. And someone would drive me <laughs> off the road, you know, and so on. But 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 there's such ignorance. There's such ignorance right. in the world, especially about the Jewish people, you know. So I don't. You know, let me put it this way. Um, you know, when I try to understand, like, what in the world is going on with American Jews, because they believe such, such malarkey about the Israeli-Palestinian thing that Israelis don't believe it. Israelis know a lot better, but the American Jews don't, okay? One of the things that, that, that I keep coming back to in my own mind is something that was true of me. It's probably still true of me. Maybe it's true of you. I don't know. I actually, I wonder if I've ever talked to anybody about this, but did you ever have fantasies about killing Hitler? Like, if you were in Germany, mm-hmm. do you think you'd have sacrificed your life if you could have killed him? See, I used to think about this all the time. And I think a lot of, a lot of American Jews, you know, basically want to, are, are hoping that there's some way to, like, revisit the Holocaust and, and have, have a different outcome. You know, and, and it's part of that, that. That's why we keep on assimilating everything into the Holocaust. But the right. Holocaust happened. That's it. It happened, and six million people are dead, and nothing's going to bring them back. And um, right. emotionally, we may think that we're, you know, 
saving the Jews by, um, you know, by, by, you know, giving the Palestinians another kick in the ass. But, but yeah. the truth of the matter is, um, you know, we may get psychological stuff and APEC may raise money on that kind of thing. And, you know, Israel's in danger. You should hear it at this conference. Israel's in danger. It's, just, it's, it's really wacko. I mean, the Palestinians have been beat. They're beat. First of all, they, first of all, you know, most of these people were peasants. You know, you know what percentage of Palestinians even fought against Israel? Probably about 1% of them during the 47 war. Most of them, even before the war began, they ran for their lives when there was this massacre in this Palestinian village called Dar Yassin. While the British were still there before the war broke out, there was this horrible massacre. You know, everyone panicked. Half of the refugees left before, before the state of Israel was even declared, before the Arab armies even entered the war. So these people, there were two groups, mm-hmm. the upper class ones. The upper class ones just simply had the money and said, what, I, I don't want to hang around here if there's going to be a war. So the whole upper class pulled out, leaving you know, most of the society even without leaders. You know, and, then, and then most of these people, illiterate, basically you know, working the land, at, you know, just enough money to, or food, growing their own food to stay alive, used to being ruled over by somebody else, whether it was the Turks, you know, or, or the Brits and so on. Um, and now hearing, okay, it's going to be another group, or maybe it'll be another group called the, called, called the Jews. Uh, well, right. if they let me, you know, keep on growing my watermelon here or whatever, uh, it'll be just yep. like it was under, you know, and so on. At any rate, they Dr. Siegel, Dr. They, Dr. They, Siegel, they, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I definitely want to touch on uh, the Senate run. Sure. Let's, let's, okay. let's move on to so the Senate. It, it, it's several it, different it, things. It, yeah. Okay, you know what Cardin did? The, the single biggest thing that Cardin did that, that – well, let me put this. There's a negative case against Cardin, and then there's, then there's a positive case for voting for me instead of him. The negative case is whether it was me or anybody else running – we should get rid of Cardin. Okay. What Cardin did, in my mind, that's unforgivable, right, is that he participated in essentially a scheme to go to war with, with Iran. And this is what Bibi Netanyahu wanted. There's no doubt about it. We've read about it in the Israeli press. Bibi's defense minister told us, and John Kerry told us a month ago in an open forum at the Washington Cathedral that when he was head of Senate Foreign Relations, that Netanyahu in there was regularly in there, pushing him for an American attack on Iran. Okay. And if you were an Israeli, maybe that would be your, your dream thing to come true. But the question is, is it good for America, right? So when the Iran deal came before the, before the Congress, right, every one of 54 Republicans voted against it, right? Why did they vote against it? Not because for some reason, magically, these 54 people all shared, you know, the same judgment about, you know, the complexities of uh, of how do you produce bombs and uranium and so on. It's basically, it was Obama. They were opposed to anything that Obama did. So they all, they all went against, against Obama's treaty. And then there were four Democrats who broke with the rest of the Democrats and joined them, you know, to make it, to make it 58. They needed 60 to kill it, right? The right. four mm-hmm. were Schumer, Menendez, the guy who was on trial in, 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 in New Jersey, and Cardin. Menendez, Menendez, Menendez from New Jersey. Right, Ben Cardin from Maryland, he's the third. And then this guy, I can't remember his name, from West Virginia, Mnuchin, I think his name is. Mnuchin, Mnuchin, Yeah, so, yeah. and guess who, guess who the number one and number two 
people for receiving money from APEC are in the Senate. <laughs> Menendez and Cardin. Before you go on, before you go on, uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention, and I know you know, Chelsea Manning is also running for the Senate along with you and, and Senator Ben Carton. Now, I do. I heard it for the first time today on the radio. Yeah, Chelsea Manning is a convicted traitor. Why is, is the Democratic well, Why know. is the Democratic Party supporting a convicted traitor? What, in what sense is the Democratic Party supporting her? Why do you say that? You keep on saying, I know you hate the Democrats, but, but what did the Democrats ever do that, that says that they support her? Well, they're basically, well, they're allowing her, they're, they're basically, some of, some of the wing of the party is supporting her, and the establishment, establishing, uh, establishment Democrats are basically supporting Ben Carton. Um, but there's a smear. There's a smear campaign that started by Senator Ben Carton against Chelsea Manning, against a transgender, uh, against a transgender. I mean, I, I thought the party. I thought the party. I, I don't was, like Carton, but I, I I find that hard to believe. You're saying Cardin started a smear of transgender people in order to... There, there, there's a Chelsea report. Cannon. Exactly. There's a report coming out today. Uh, it, it was... Uh, I can't recall the... Uh, the, um, the, the it doesn't make any sense. That there's, there's a, a, a smear co- campaign that it basically <laughs> got started against Chelsea Manning. And I'm saying to myself, why, why are we supporting... Why are they uh, um, basically doing that to a transgender? I thought the, the Democratic Party was pro-transgender. Yeah, well, I don't, the point is that what you, you're putting your finger actually on, uh, you know, what 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 shows that this is a phony story, which is that that the last thing that that Cardin would do is uh, put himself in a position where the truth of where such a story would come out. And he'd be discredited as someone who was attacking transgender inside the party. That would kill him. And why should he do it? Chelsea Manning's no threat to him. She's not going to get anywhere. Exactly. He's exactly. Not I mean, Chelsea I mean, Manning. We've got polling results I, that we did short of getting three percent of the vote. I mean, Chelsea Manning is not going to unseat Ben Cardin. It's going to be a Ben or Jerry primary on Jerry. <laughs> so how 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 are, how, how, there, how, how are you polling? How are you polling right now? I, I'm, I'm not, at, at, at this moment, I'm like about 3%. Okay, I'm not known. I'm not known, but I'm going to get known very fast. You know, right. like, you know, I'm putting, I'm sending out next week the first, the first mailing, right, to, and to sample just the 50,000 of the registered Democrats in the, uh, in, in, in the state. I think they're 1.4 million. Okay. But if this goes well, then, I'll scale up, and I'll, I'll I'll be in every household. I'll be on. The, I'll do a lot of media, uh, and I'll get I'll get a lot of free publicity. You know, like like because you see the difference is here's the here's the thing. Ben Cardin has been in office for half a century. Right, this guy this guy took over his uncle's seat in the state legislature while he was in law school. Right, mm-hmm. so he, he and I like we were five weeks apart. He was born five weeks before I was, right? 
And um, and he's been in office for 50 years. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on television and say, <laughs> you know, if, if Ben Cardin retired tomorrow, would you miss him? And you know what? Nobody would miss him. This guy has been here for half a century. Nobody would even know he was gone. You, you wouldn't know. Right. You wouldn't know that he was even missing. You know, <laughs> I you're right. Tell you, 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 I you are absolutely right. Thing. I can do a ben, I can do a funny you, thing. Where I could have an ad made that shows Ben wandering out of an old age home and no one knows he's gone. <laughs> Doctor Siegel, you are absolutely correct. I, I, I know, I know who's in the Senate, and Ben Carn is one of the least known senators in my book. That's right. You are absolutely yeah, he's, correct. He's, no, he's boring, Ben. Is boring, Ben. And I am actually, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying this about myself, but it's, it's really true. I, I'll give you, you know who Rob Malley is? Rob Malley was, you know, the senior Middle East advisor to both Bill Clinton and Obama on, on Middle East stuff. Okay. So the other day, and I've known him for many years, and I sent out something that he retweeted, and he put on it, I didn't ask him to do this, he put on it, Jerome Siegel, I've never met a more creative mind. <laughs> You know, and I have more ideas. I have more ideas in five minutes than Ben Cardin has had since he left law school. I'm not kidding. Right. Well, I have Ben Cardin's uh, voting here's record. My here, about why, funny. Here's, here's my theory about why, why people voted for Trump. Okay. It's very simple. Uh-huh. Right. When, you, when, when Americans go to the polls to vote for president, the, the, the most immediate thing that they're deciding is who is it for the next four years that they're going to be seeing on television every single night at 6.30 or 7. Essentially picking sort of, and, and the question is, you know, which is the more boring program, right? To see Donald Trump on television every night or to see Hillary Clinton on television every night. And it's, it's a choice between, you know, the gong show versus I don't know what, Hallmark Hall of Fame or a theater or something. I don't know what. But basically people, <laughs> this is how, you know, American politics is pathetic, right? <laughs> this is not, it is not. So people are choosing between television shows. And, you know, let's face it. I mean, on that basis, the one thing you got to say about Trump is that it's, it's like being hooked on a soap opera. You can't, That's you right. don't want to take That's your right. You know, you Dr. Siegel, Dr. Siegel, we we almost have uh, under a minute, and I just want to <laughs> get your final final uh, analysis, and also provide us with your website or any other sites that that our okay. audience would like to for you know free free advertisement. Okay, well the website, by the way, the website is the most amazing website in America. It's it's www.siegel4senate. Um, dot org or one word siegel for it's for senate and you'll see on there i mean i i I've put you know i didn't want the opposition researchers to have any problem so i put on the 30 articles that of right. mine that i wrote that were published in arabic for the palestinian press over the last 30 years addressing the palestinian people so people can see you know exactly exactly what I was saying when, you know, when I addressed the Palestinians. And I think I'm probably the only American, the only Jew, the only anybody to actually write for the Palestinian ten, people you Dr. Know, Siegel, in the world. Yeah. Dr. Siegel, 10 seconds. Uh, I, thank you for coming on, and we look forward okay. to having you again. Okay, and the contribute button is on the website. Don't forget that. <laughs> 
Uh, fantastic. Have a great evening. Thank you. Yeah, you too. It was a lot of fun. Take care. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye. Okay, anybody there? <laughs> 